Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. We're live. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew3 Project. And today I'm very excited um, to bring to you a very special guest um, from Dallas Theological Seminary, Dr. Daniel Wallace. Welcome, Dr. Wallace. Thank you, Lisa. I'm just delighted to be on the show. <laughs> delighted to have you. Uh, for those who haven't heard of you, could you give them just a little bit of background? Yes, I'm a senior professor of New Testament studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. I've been there for 30 years, and I'm also the executive director of the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, which is a big mouthful. But that's uh, an institute, uh, it's a nonprofit institute whose primary goal is to digitize all Greek New Testament manuscripts and make them available on the internet. And our ultimate goal is to help in assisting to try to recover the exact wording of the Greek New Testament based on these images that we have. That's awesome and very, very important. And I I shared with you before we went on uh, live and um, why this topic is so important, especially New Testament um, textual criticism, because this book, uh, was introduced to me, uh, Bart Ehrman's book was introduced to me in 2007, I believe, when I was taking the New Testament course at the University of North Florida, and I had no idea who Bart Ehrman was, uh, textual criticism, I had no idea what that was as, as, as well, and it really challenged me um, and stretched me, and if it had not been for that course, I guess I thank God for Bart Ehrman now, because had he not had he not written this book and I not been challenged, I would have never dug deeper. Uh, so I guess it was a blessing in disguise, and by God's grace and His providence, He used it all to work together for my good. But that's, that's um, how He's used skeptics for the last two thousand years, I think. <laughs> yes, and so um, that book kind of really got me on the process of thinking through um, textual criticism, and I was introduced to your work through my professor. At Liberty, um, Dr. Leo Persher, uh, which is my favorite uh, New Testament professor uh, ever. Uh, shout out to Dr. Persher if he's watching. Uh, so he introduced me to your work because I was wrestling through some of Bart, some of Ehrman's stuff even while I was in seminary. So it was a blessing to know that you had debated him. Um, so if you if you are watching, you can also go see Dr. After this, you could go watch Dr. Wallace's debates with Bart Ehrman. Um, on YouTube. So uh, without further ado, I guess we'll get into these questions. I think before the question, before we ask the first question, I think it's important that we kind of preface this by talking about what is a New Testament textual criticism. So uh, before I ask you the first question, can you kind of explain that for those viewers who may not know? That's a great place to start. Uh, the word criticism doesn't mean that we're being critical of the Bible. It really is virtually a synonym for research. So it's New Testament textual research, and it has to do with the primary goal of recovering the wording of an ancient text. That's what textual criticism is, whose original is, has either disappeared or is no longer accessible for some reason. We actually have to do this with Shakespeare's plays and Mozart's operas, as well as with Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, even though that was long after the time of the printing press. We have to do it with all ancient literature as well. We don't have the originals 
of any ancient document, including the New Testament, any literary document, I should say. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So that would help us with the next question. How many differences are there among the manuscripts um, of the New Testament and what is their nature? Well, to think about the differences among these manuscripts, we should define a couple of things. Uh, first is, what do we mean by a difference? So the, the technical term is a textual variant, and it has to do with any place where there's a difference in wording. It can be word order. You can leave out a word, add a word. It can be dropping a whole verse, adding a whole verse. It can even be spelling differences. All those count as textual variants. And the way we count them is not by saying, well, here's a base text, and we have 10 manuscripts that disagree with it, uh, and therefore that's 10 variants. If they all have the same thing in that disagreement, it's still just one variant. So like in John chapter 4, verse 1, we have when Jesus knew that the Pharisees had heard, and then other manuscripts say when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard. Now, those are the only variants we have there. It's either Jesus or the Lord. There's no manuscripts that say Peter or Mary or John or something like that. But you count the variants by just what the text is, not by how many manuscripts are tested. So if we had a thousand manuscripts that said when the Lord knew, that still counts as one variant from Jesus. I say this because for the last 50 years, there has been among apologists a faulty understanding of how to count textual variants. So uh, if, if you understand this, that it's any place where there's any wording difference in the New Testament manuscripts, then that counts as a variant. Now, we have approximately 140,000 words in the Greek New Testament. To be more precise, we have 138,162, uh, but uh, you don't need to remember that. It won't show up on the test, so no worries there. But, uh, <laughs> uh, we have today approximately half a million textual variants that are that's our best estimate as to how many there actually are. That's about three and a half variants for every word in the text. And when you hear skeptics talk about the variants, this is what they put all the emphasis on. However, when you do some research into this, you discover why. First of all, the reason we have a lot of variants is because we have a lot of manuscripts. If we had one manuscript, it wouldn't disagree with itself. There'd be no variants. As soon as you add a second manuscript, and this is, by definition, a handwritten document that is not a copy of a printed text or it's done before the time of the printing press. So we've got 1,500 years of copies of the Greek New Testament, and uh, that, that's what counts as a manuscript. As soon as you add a second manuscript, it will disagree with the first one. It's virtually impossible for human beings to make two identical manuscripts that go on for hundreds of pages. In fact, we know of none among our New Testament manuscripts. We have nearly 6,000 manuscripts of the New Testament in Greek alone. And the average one is more than 450 pages long. So that comes out to about two and a half million words or pages altogether. And so to have a half a million texture variants in all that material is, is actually not that big of a deal. Uh, I did a, 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 a test a few years ago. On, I just was kind of curious about how many ways I could say John loves Mary in Greek. And uh, I spent eight hours one day writing out the different ways you can say it. And there's different spellings for John, different spellings for Mary. And you can say John loves the Mary. You can put it in a different word order. Uh, you can add the article the or leave it off. And I came up with 384 ways to say John loves Mary. Every single one is translated exactly the same, and it's the same verb each time. 
In fact, I decided that's enough that kind of proves the point that there's a lot of ways to have what I would call trivial variants that affect nothing in something in a three-word text. Now, if you change the word to a different verb and add some other particles, you can actually get up to about 1,200 ways just to say John loves Mary in Greek. Wow. Think about it. Bart Ehrman, in one of his books, says there are so many variants in the New Testament that we have more variants than we have words in the New Testament. That's exactly right. In fact, it's a bit of an understatement. But when you look at that and you say, he goes on, he says, we could go on talking about these textual variants nearly forever. There's not just mere hundreds, there's thousands and tens of thousands, and in fact, hundreds of thousands. He's absolutely right. We could go on talking about them nearly forever, and all of us would be bored to death because the vast majority of them are of this sort that don't affect anything. Textual critics, we're kind of a nerdy group, and we get together every year to discuss very important variants, and I have determined that approximately one-fifth of one percent of all textual variants are both meaningful and viable. That is, they can change the meaning of the text to some degree, and they have a good possibility of going back to the original wording. So that's what I mean by viable. So that's about a thousand variants out of the half a million variants. That's it. Uh, most variants are spelling differences. There's others that are nonsense. There's word order differences, and they just don't affect anything. So it's, it's the ones that are meaningful and viable is where all textual critics spend their time. So here's the point. The nature of the textual variants is such that the great majority of them, well over 99% of them, affect nothing. And so we're looking at just a very small fraction that do affect things, and that's the fraction that we wanted to try to think about. Let me give a, a couple examples of uh, those that are both meaningful and viable. Okay. Mark, Mark chapter 9, verse 29, Jesus tells his disciples uh, that uh, this kind of demon can only be cast out by prayer, or he says, by prayer and fasting. Now, the later manuscripts, which happen to be in the majority, have the word fasting. Uh, but most, uh, most of the early manuscripts don't have it. They just say, by prayer. So there's some manuscripts that say, you have to cast these demons out by also fasting. Others that say, just by prayer. This is the only place in the New Testament where it says that fasting is necessary for certain kinds of exorcisms. Uh, if that wording is not original, then that means that that's not something that Jesus uh, said, and that therefore it's not required to, to exercise certain kinds of pesky demons. So this is not a matter of orthodoxy. It is a matter of orthopraxy. I mean, how do we, how do we practice our faith? And if you're involved in exorcisms, uh, it's kind of important to know about textual criticism. At the same time, I kind of hedge my bet. If I'm going to be involved in that kind of stuff, I'd say I'm going to pray and fast just, just to make sure. But let me give you another one that's a little bit more interesting, I think, and that's Revelation 13, 18. There is a meaningful and a viable variant to the wording there where it says the number of the man is 666. That This is the number of the beast, and it's a number of a man, 666. Now, what that means is, well, there's all sorts of things as to, to what we think the 666 means. But if you Googled 666, you would find some of the screwiest ideas on the planet about that idea, what 666 means. The problem is that might not be what John originally wrote. There are two manuscripts that exist today, and others were known in the second century that existed, 
that have the number of the beast as 616. So consequently, maybe that's what John wrote. But I don't know of a single Bible college or theological seminary or church or denomination that says in its doctrinal statement, we believe in the virgin birth, we believe in the deity of Christ, we believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ, and we believe that the Antichrist is 666. That's his number. You know, it, it may be meaningful, it may be viable, but it's not that important. And in fact, most scholars who've examined this, one of these manuscripts just came to light less than 20 years ago, and it happens to be our oldest manuscript for Revelation 13. But most scholars still today would say, 616, no, that's the not the number of the beast. That's the neighbor of the beast. He goes a few doors down, you know. So, <laughs> so that may be the case, but it's a meaningful and viable variant. But what does it actually affect? It changes the meaning of that text there and who the identification of the Antichrist is in some respects, although I don't think it really affects that very much either. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one of the more important ones. And this is the kind of thing that textual critics are fascinated by. We are detailed people. We're anal retentive. We like to focus on, on really nerdy stuff. And this is one of those things is, oh, that's exciting because it's very interesting to us. Mm-hmm. When we talk about um, the New Testament, how does it compare in, in manuscripts to other um, literature? Uh, because sometimes people like to hold the New Testament to this um, standard that they don't hold other uh, forms of literature to um, and which would cause problems in the way uh, we just have, we read history altogether. uh, If we look at, if we compare New Testament manuscripts to other manuscripts in literature. That's a great question. When people talk about, we don't have the originals of the New Testament uh, and they, they, and Bart Ehrman goes on, he says, we don't have the originals. We don't even have the copies of the originals. We don't have the copies of the copies of the copies of the originals. So he goes out four generations and says, we don't have those. He, he may be right. He may not be right. We don't really know. Because one of the things that has come out in just the last few years is a study about ancient libraries that uh, is showing how long literary papyri would last. And if you've got a, a literary document that you have on a papyrus scroll, they would typically last two or 300 years, even if they're being copied to some degree and read to some degree. So the originals of the New Testament, written in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 90s, I think, may have lasted for several decades. So somebody comes along who might be coming, say, 100 years after Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, and the original might still exist. And so he comes along and copies that out. Now, I happen to think that all of the New Testament manuscripts disappeared by the end of the second century, but I think they did so precisely because they were not just read, but copied over and over and over again. And so when you say we don't have the first copies or the copies of the copies of the New Testament, that's probably true, but may not be true. But let's just assume that it is true. It's also true for all of ancient literature. There's nothing in the Greco-Roman world where we have copies that come that early. In fact, the average Greco-Roman author has fewer than 15 copies of his manuscripts still in existence today. And if you were to stack those up, they would be about four feet high if you stacked them on top of each other, you know, about the size of a podium, the height of a podium. The New Testament, we have nearly 6,000 manuscripts in Greek, many of which go back to the second century. We have at least a dozen manuscripts within 100 years of the completion of the New Testament. We have uh, over 10,000 manuscripts in Latin, which was uh, an early translation starting in the late second century. And Latin swept across the rest of Western Europe and became the lingua franca from that point on. 
And we have another five to 10,000 manuscripts in other ancient languages. And so all these manuscripts together means we have somewhere between 20 and 25,000 manuscripts of the New Testament in various languages. Now, you compare that to the average Greco-Roman author, less than 15 manuscripts. What about the dates? We have about a dozen manuscripts within a century of the completion of the New Testament. We have, within uh, three centuries, we have uh, over 60 manuscripts, including complete New Testaments. Now, you compare that to the average classical author, the average classical author is waiting over a thousand years before we get a single copy. If we had to wait like that for the New Testament, the skeptics would have a field day. When they talk about how we don't have the originals, how can we possibly tell what the original said, they haven't made the comparisons with other ancient literature. The average classical author actually has one thousandth, less than a thousandth, as much material as we have for the New Testament. In our manuscripts, within our first thousand years of the, of the New Testament, a thousand years after the New Testament, for the average classical author, there's no copies. For the New Testament, there's over 1,800 copies just in Greek alone. It's, it's such a vast difference that anybody who has ever made this comparison just says, this is laughable. Why would you even try to start an argument that says we can't get back to the New Testament? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that's important to understand that it's not just it's not just a few copies. We, as um, uh, if you've done you know apologetics in in New Testament and textual criticism, you know the the many copies leads to kind of proof of the reliability of it. Um, it doesn't kind of dismiss it. How does uh, I know this isn't on the uh, previous questions that I gave you, but as as it relates to Bart Ehrman, how does he try to navigate through all the copies that we have? How does he kind of finagle his way out of that? Well, one of the things he, he's, he's said, he's admitted that he re- really hasn't done a lot of textual criticism in the classical texts. And so he, he has not been exposed to that. He hasn't studied that. That's been a hobby of mine to look at the, the, the copies of other ancient literature. Uh, but when I confronted him about this in our third debate and said, look, uh, are you prepared to say that we don't have the originals of Plato's Republic or a Xenophon's uh, Anabasis or something like this? He said, yes, I am prepared to say that we can't get back to the original. And he said there are several scholars that would go in that direction. He may be right that there are some scholars that go there, but the vast majority of classical scholars still say the goal of our task, text critically, is to get back to the original wording, and we think we have largely accomplished it. So Ehrman has not done an apples-to-apples comparison. And when you do that, you discover, gee, the the differences are, are incredible, how consistent the New Testament is in terms of the copies over the centuries. And not only that, but uh, uh, when you look at the earliest manuscripts, he, one of the things he tried to point out is that these early scribes were not professional scribes, so they made a lot more mistakes than the later ones who were professional. I had a student who did his master's thesis on this, and then he got some work published on it. He then got his doctorate at Edinburgh University in textual criticism. And what he discovered was that whether a scribe was professionally trained or not, that didn't tell us whether he was a careful copyist. One of the least professional scribes we have made one of the most copy, uh, most faithful copies, and that's uh, P75. It's an early third century manuscript, about AD 200. And this scribe 
copied one letter at a time. His letters don't look particularly pretty. They look like chicken scratches, but they're readable. While another scribe, the scribe of P66, who's a little bit earlier, he's copying very elegantly, calligraphically, but he makes mistakes. He leaves out words here and there by accident because he's wholly consumed with making pretty letters. One of the illustrations I like to use is, is if you think about these variants, the vast, vast majority of texture variants, including in our earliest manuscripts, are those that are made by mistake, by accident. And uh, I like to use this kind of an illustration. It, th those are the kinds of mistakes that scribes, later scribes, easily corrected because they knew what that original scribe was trying to write. If I said, uh, I'm, let's say I quote from the preamble to the U.S. Constitution, and I'm writing this down, and somebody sees what I wrote, and I wrote down, we believe, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect onion. Now, if somebody comes along and sees that, say, onion, onion, that's not the right word. We know it's cucumber. <laughs> you know, it's, it's union. So the fact is, seeing that context, they say, no, that's the wrong word. He put an O there when he meant a U, and maybe the doorbell rang or he got tired or whatever or heard it wrong or he just doesn't have a clue how to spell, which is often the case for scribes. That's the kinds of mistakes that are the easiest to correct. And those get self-corrected through the centuries by the scribes. So that's one of the things that, that Ehrman just, I don't think, has wrestled with as much as he should have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's very helpful. For those who don't know who Ehrman is, I, I, I realize that I'm talking about it with assuming that people know who Bar Ehrman is, but he is one of the leading um, New Testament professors um, not uh, and he worked he is a professor at uh, North Carolina UNC Chapel Hill uh, which he's probably excited right now because they just won um, the basketball tournament he's a big so. basketball fan yeah, he, yeah I'm sure he's very pleased with that <laughs> um, so uh, but he does a lot of work in the area of New Testament criticism uh, and one of the biggest uh, skeptics as it relates to the New Testament. So he does a lot of writing. Uh, so that's why we're thankful for uh, Dr. Wallace, who kind of can give a, a different view to help uh, navigate through some of his uh, readings, uh, through some of his uh, research. Um, what, for those who are listening, who are like, why is this important? What theological um, what theological issues are at stake with these different variants? That, I think, is really the nub of the question. And in Bart Ehrman's Misquoting Jesus, which was the book that was a popularization of the work he had done in textual criticism for, for decades, it came out in 2005, and he tried to demonstrate that the theology of the New Testament was changed by these scribes. Now, what he was able to show was that some scribes did change the wording so it would conform better to what their, their view of theology was. But did it actually change the uh, fundamental, essential theology of the New Testament? I like to use the illustration of uh, the deity of Christ. Now, this is not Ehrman's view, but others have held this. A number of people think that when Emperor Constantine uh, initiated the Council of Nicaea in AD 325, which was the first ecumenical council of the church, uh, Constantine was the first Roman emperor to become a Christian. When he started that in uh, 325, a lot of people think that what happened at that event was that he said, I'm going to tell you what to believe, and you're going to affirm the deity of Christ. In fact, in Dan Brown's novel, The Da Vinci Code, he actually makes this claim. He has Sir Lee Teabing telling Sophie in his home in France that until that moment in history, 
Jesus was just a mortal, just a man, not divine at all, but Constantine invented the deity of Christ. And Dan Brown actually believes that. The problem is we have at least 48 manuscripts prior to AD 325, and we have a number of them that have those passages that speak about uh, these passages that are called uh, crux passages on whether it affirms the deity of Christ or not. For example, coming back to P66 at John 1.1, it says what every single manuscript in every single language says, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that was written at least 125 years before Constantine started the uh, Council of Nicaea. He actually had no input on how to define the deity of Christ. He gave one word to the Council, and that was it. But this is where an ounce of evidence uh, just trumps a, a, a pound, a ton of presupposition. And the early manuscripts don't disagree with the later ones on the essentials of the faith. In fact, let me uh, point out that in the paperback version of Bart Ehrman's book, Misquoting Jesus, on page 252, I've seen it in the early paperback versions, and I saw a later one, and I don't think they kept this appendix in there, and you'll, you may figure out why here in a second. He is asked by the publishers, uh, why do you believe that the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith have been tampered with by these scribes? And they're put in jeopardy. And he says, I don't believe that. There is no essential doctrine of the Christian faith that is jeopardized by any of these textual variants. Bart Ehrman says that. And so if people had read that, then maybe hundreds of thousands who have abandoned the Christian faith in college might say, I may, may need to retrace my steps because I just kind of had a chicken little attitude about what he was saying elsewhere in the book. <laughs> Two passages that are popular that um, because of... Um, textual criticism uh, are not accepted in, in some spaces are uh, the longer ending of Mark and John 8, um, the woman caught in the act of adultery. Oh, how do you think we should navigate through those passages? Because uh, the woman caught in the act of adultery is a very popular passage. Uh, one preached from uh, across pulpits all across uh, the the country, and that's one that I've wrestled with personally. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you how do you answer or 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 deal with that? And for those who don't know, uh, those aren't in the original. I'm I'm not even sure how to say it, so I'll let you articulate it. So I won't mess mess it up. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> those two passages, Mark sixteen nine through twenty, and John seven fifty three through eight eleven are far and away the longest textual variants we have among the New Testament manuscripts. They're each 12 verses long. The next longest one is about two verses long. And we only have about two dozen that are one or two verses. Then everything else is part of a verse or maybe just a single word or part of a word. But those two passages are hardly representative of the other kinds of uh, textual problems we have. Nevertheless, the long ending of Mark's gospel is not found in our two oldest Greek manuscripts, both from the fourth century, the oldest ones for that passage. And uh, I, I think that that is very strong evidence because these two manuscripts, when they agree, their reading goes back deep into the second century, so shortly after AD 100 or so. It's not just those two manuscripts, but a number of early translations, early versions don't have it. Like uh, the Armenian doesn't have it originally, and others have 
a different ending besides the long ending, where in verse 17 you read about picking up snakes, uh, snakes drinking poison, not getting hurt, this kind of thing. Uh, a number of other manuscripts have a different ending there. If the gospel originally ended at verse 8, then it would be saying the angel told the women to go and tell Jesus' disciples that he has been raised from the dead, and they were afraid and did nothing, period. End of the gospel. What a downer. And so scribes who come across and see this say, we have to have a resurrection appearance by Jesus to his disciples. And so there were several different endings that were added to the gospel. What's been discovered is that not just the earliest manuscripts in Greek, but the earliest versions don't have that ending or they have another ending before it. And two early church fathers made a very important comment about this. Eusebius, who was in the early 4th century in Jerome in the late 4th and early 5th century, both working with manuscripts, one for the or basically what became the Orthodox Church and the other for what became the Catholic Church. They had access to the wealth of those two uh, churches for the kinds of manuscripts they could look at. Eusebius said, I can hardly find any manuscript that has these last 12 verses. That's early 4th century. Jerome says, I can f hardly find any Greek manuscripts that have these. So he was giving a little bit of a clue that maybe it was creeping in through some other versions. But here in the fourth century, then, there's virtually no manuscripts that these two scholars who had access to most of the manuscripts or many of the manuscripts of the ancient world, they just couldn't find them. What does that tell us? It tells us that what is now in the majority of the manuscripts certainly was not in the majority in the fourth century. So when you look at that, that's the external evidence. And then you look at the internal evidence, which is the wording. And both in the style, in the vocabulary, in the syntax, in the theological perspective, those last 12 verses just don't fit in with Mark's gospel. So that's why most scholars would say those 12 verses are not authentic. Now, what do we lose? Well, that same kind of information we see in Matthew and Luke and the book of Acts. We see Paul getting bit by a snake. We see some of these other things. We see people speaking in tongues. And so there's no essential doctrine that is lost if we don't have those 12 verses. Now, the story of the woman caught in adultery is quite different. Here it is found in those uh, 12 verses in the middle of John's gospel. But that uh, passage is not found in any manuscripts of the first eight centuries in Greek except one, as far as I recall. Uh, that's pretty significant. So the first 800 years, we, don't, we have quite a few manuscripts that don't have it. And we have one that does have it in a quite different form than how it's been published in, in uh, translations. Not only that, but we don't have any church father to comment on that passage, to write an actual commentary on it for over 1,000 years. And the Greek church in their lectionary system, which is what they read every, every Sunday from the pulpit uh, in other days, um, they didn't have that in the lectionary system at all. And, and that was added later. So the evidence against the story of the woman caught in adultery both externally and internally, meaning John's style of writing, is overwhelmingly against its authenticity. It's even greater and far greater than the evidence against the long ending of Mark's gospel. I like to ask people when I speak uh, about these passages in public, if you could pick one of these two passages to put in the Bible, which would it be? Almost universally, everybody wants the woman caught in adultery in the Bible because it shows Jesus' compassion and his mercy. And yet the evidence for that is far more slender than the evidence for Mark 16. Consequently, we can't come to the text on the basis of emotion. We have to come to it on the basis of evidence. 
And I'd like to say the story of the woman caught in adultery is my favorite passage that's not in the Bible, uh, because I don't think it's original. And it floats in various places. It's not just there. It's in Luke's gospel. It's between Luke and John. It's uh, at the end of the four gospels. It goes all over the map in about half a dozen different places, which tells us that it's a story that scribes wanted to put in the Bible, and they just weren't sure where to put it. But this is the one that was became the most popular place. Yeah, it's, I think it's a challenging one. I, I know some pastors who preface messages on uh, on that passage with the uh, textual uh, problems with it. So uh, I think, thank you for shedding light on that. Um, our time is up, but before we go, how can people contact you um, and get in touch with you? Uh, are you on uh, Facebook, Twitter, um, and give us your website and also some books you would recommend on this subject? Uh, they can contact me. The, the best way is probably to reach me at uh, Dallas Seminary's uh, website or my email address there, which is dwallace, just my first initial Wallace, at dts.edu. That's my email address. Um, and uh, I, no, I'm not on, I, I have a Twitter account. I've never used it. But anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> that's probably the best way to reach me. In terms of materials that they can get, I would recommend a, a couple of things especially. First would be the second debate that Bart Ehrman and I had at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. It was the largest attended debate ever on the text of the Bible. Over 1,400 people came to that, some from other countries, and it was professionally videoed. That debate is on a DVD that people can get at csntm.org. CSNTM stands for the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. And if you just remember CS as in C.S. Lewis and NTM as an antium of Wizard of Oz, then you got CS Antium, and, and they'll get the, the right website. Uh, that It's like $15. It's a two-hour DVD, both of the debate, Q&A afterwards, and exit interviews of people asking uh, who they thought won. The, the thing that's valuable about that DVD is it shows both sides. And people can get their friends to look at it, their skeptics to look at it, skeptic friends, and sit down and discuss it. So I think that's extremely valuable for them to have that. I'd also recommend Reinventing Jesus, which is a book I co-authored a few years ago. And it's got a section on the canon, how do we know which books belong in the New Testament, a large section on the text of the New Testament, uh, five chapters on that. How do we know that the uh, evangelists got the story of Jesus right? How do we know that they got the text right? How do we know they got the books of the New Testament right? Those kinds of questions. And it's been used in a lot of circles for basically New Testament apologetics. So I think it's a real helpful book for that. Awesome. That's what I'd recommend. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Wallace. I really appreciate your time. And I think this will be a blessing to those who hear it. And Thanks. Watch. Thanks, Lisa. This has been a joy to speak with you today. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. As always, you can catch all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com or you can subscribe on iTunes and Google Play by searching the Jew 3 Project. You can also get better equipped with our Bible engagement app by searching the App Store, Google Play or Apple App Store by searching the Jew 3 Project, and that will help you better engage scripture on a daily basis. If you would like to donate to the Jew 3 Project, go to jew3project.com and hit the Donate tab. In addition, you can follow us on, in, on social media by searching at Jew 3 Project on Facebook,
Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and YouTube. Remember, here at the Jude 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.